Amen. I'm going to say good morning again. It's mostly for this half of the room because they didn't cover for you this time. It was obvious that you showed up late, but one of you had a baby last Sunday, so you are forgiven for showing up for church. I feel like y'all need a round of applause for showing up. (laughs) My name is Allie Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited that you decided to join us this week because we're in our second week of what has become a really fun sermon series, and we're going to joke that it is going to be your favorite because it's all about your favorite subject, you. It is all about you and how you tick and what makes you, you. And as I was thinking about this drive to understand who we are, I started to look back at some journals that I had written, and it tells you a lot about my personality that when I was about 10 or 11, I decided to start writing a journal. But of course, the pretentious 10-year-old that I was, I started writing it on a computer. And I wrote it on a computer for like 10 years. So I have these single-spaced pages over like, I don't know, there must be 120, 120, 130 pages of me typing my thoughts when I was 10 years old until the time I was about 20 about who I was, what I was going on, what was going on in my life, who I liked, who were my friends. And I decided to go back and just look at them this weekend. And let me tell you, that was a mistake. You don't need to go back and look at what you thought when you were 10 years old. If you're 10 years old now, just hold your breath, guys. There's a lot of stuff going on, but what I noticed without fail is that I started every sentence with the letter I. And because it was whatever year it was, it was cool not to capitalize things, every sentence starts with a lowercase i. And I looked through and I was like, my God, I was obsessed with this idea of me. I wanted to figure out me. And really, this is pretty normal in adolescence, right? Somewhere around 10, 12, if you're a boy, somewhere around 15, you start thinking about who you are. You start trying to piece together what makes you unique. And really, for most of us, this journey doesn't ever stop. Once it starts in adolescence, we're kind of attracted to this idea of who we are, what makes us us. And whole industries have been built around this. You just have to walk into the self-help section of Barnes & Nobles to figure that out. There are whole testing agencies that are created to be able to tell you more about you. Some of you have paid people to tell you more about you. It's actually fairly common practice. And I started to think, well, why do we do that? What causes this drive to know a little bit more about who we are? I think it's a bit different when we're teenagers, but as we become adults, this drive to know who we are and what makes us tick, it's driven by this idea that if we know a little bit more about ourselves, then maybe, just maybe, we'll uncover this magical secret that'll help us improve our performance somewhere in life, in school, in our relationships. Maybe it'll help us make better choices. Maybe, in essence, it'll help us live a better life life. And what's interesting in the last 20 years is that that drive to know who we are hasn't been limited to individuals. You've seen it spread into organizations. I want to take you back to a workplace circa 2012. One of my friends was employed here, and they had all of their employees 
take a test. It's actually pretty normal these days for in corporate offices. They make their employees take a personality test, one that's devised for work. There's a new one every year. And they take it with the goal that maybe if people know who they are and know who others are, then they can start to work better together. And this friend, they took something called the DISC. It's a very, very popular personality test at work. I'm sure some of you have taken it. And it's the one with the colors, red, blue, yellow, and green. And your base, depending on what quadrant has the most color, is what your type is. And this friend said that they had to cut out their little profile, their little quadrant, and they pasted it on their office door. That was required by company policy that the idea was that if other people knew that you were a yellow, then maybe they could identify better with you or they could interact better with you. But not surprising, do you know what happened in that company within like a couple months? All those signs were taken down. You know why? Because those signs turned out to be defense mechanisms instead of ways to interact with one another. So you'd hear comments like, man, God, He's way too blue for me. I can't relate to him. I can't talk to her. Her yellowness drives me crazy. I can't handle it. And people started making comments and dividing themselves amongst these colors. So instead of getting people to work together better, they actually made things worse in the office. People started to hide behind these labels that they've been given by the colors. Now, What's really interesting about this experiment to me is that I don't think that this workplace was all that far off. I, I think their execution was wrong. I think the tool that they used was wrong. I think the intention was right. What if our personalities, what makes us unique, what makes us different, actually served a larger purpose in terms of how we got along. What if the point of self-knowledge, of knowing yourself, of discovering who you are, doesn't have to do with improving performance in your own individual life or helping you make better choices? What if it has to do with something greater? And that's what we're going to look at today. We are going to look at a passage and a letter to the Corinthians that we actually looked at uh, a couple weeks ago. So if you were here a couple weeks ago, then you have a head start. Alina, thank you for pulling out your phone. You know, you know what I'm going to say. Go ahead and pull out your phones. I need you to look up 1 Corinthians chapter. We're going to start on chapter 12. You can do any version you want. And I'm going to read from NRSV. CEB is another version that I use a lot. Or NIV. Those are kind of our three preferred versions. So while you're looking at that, I want to give you a little bit of a primer on 1 Corinthians, and this will be a refresh for those who were here a few weeks ago. So 1 Corinthians was written by a guy named Paul. Paul was one of the most famous church planners, probably the most influential person in Christianity besides Jesus. And after Jesus died and rose again and went to heaven, he started to spread the word about Jesus. Now, he himself wasn't an apostle, but he had a conversion experience and ended up being passionate for this idea of what it meant to follow Jesus. Now, there weren't formal churches or anything like that during his time, but he started to gather people together in communities. And later, these things would be called churches. And he went around and preached to various cities in Asia Minor. And he would stay with them for a few weeks, maybe a few months. And then eventually, he'd move on and go to another city. 
Well, he wanted to keep tabs on those communities that he had visited before. So he started writing letters back to them, and then they would write letters back to him. So there was this loop cycle of news that was coming from these churches. Now, in the Bible, what we have is only Paul's letters to the churches, probably because he wanted them to be widely distributed. So he wrote lots of different letters, copies of the same letter, but we don't have the letter from, for example, the Corinthians back to Paul. So we do a lot of guesswork about what the Corinthians were dealing with based on Paul's response. But what we can get when we look at the guesswork in 1 Corinthians is there was obviously a lot of division within the Corinthian church. That's the primary issue that Paul is addressing. And you can look at it in the very, very beginning. Paul does his formal greeting. He says, hello, I'm so thankful for you. And then he starts off by talking about something really important that was going on. He jumps into it immediately. And he talks about divisions of groups. And you can look at 1 Corinthians 1. And he talks about, now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all be in agreement and that there are no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. If he had a thesis statement for what he was writing about in 1 Corinthians, it would be that, that there not be divisions and that everyone be united around the same purpose. And he goes through this whole letter, naming issues that had caused division. One of them is that people were bragging about like who they got baptized by. So they'd say, no, I'm from Apollo's group, or no, I'm from Peter's group. And they were dividing themselves, claiming who was better than the other. Sounds very similar to me to that workplace analogy, right? People had found a label, they had gravitated for it, and they formed these groups around it. The next issue that he addressed is something a little obscure for our, for our context, but it's this idea of meat being sacrificed to idols. So there was plenty of meat for sale in Corinth, but there was also meat that was sacrificed to the pagan gods. And some within the church community were saying, oh, we can't eat that. We can't eat that meat. It's been sacrificed to idols. Like that's against our religion. That's against what we believe. It's unclean. And then there were others in the community who said, but those, those gods don't exist. Like those pagans don't exist. So there's no way that that meat can mean anything. Being sacrificed to idols doesn't mean anything if there is only one true God. And Paul writes to them and is furious and is like, guys, yes, you're right. Those pagan gods mean nothing. But if it causes your brothers and sisters to stumble, don't do it. If it causes your brothers and sisters to stumble, then don't eat the meat. It's a little sacrifice. You can do it. The point is, is that we have to work together. We have to be of one mind. Otherwise, this idea of unity in Christ, it doesn't work. And so finally, he gets to where we're writing now. We're going to look at two chapters that he's talking about kind of the same thing in different ways. And it's 1 Corinthians 12. And he starts off talking about spiritual gifts. And so he's addressing specifically what's happening in the worship in Corinth, so how they're worshiping together. And we're going to read this first paragraph, and then I'll pause and kind of explain a little bit more about how they were worshiping. So let's start there, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you are pagans, you are enticed and led astray to idols that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, for us, that's like, what? 
What are they saying? What he's saying in spiritual gifts is this understanding in ancient worship that there were manifestations of the Spirit. Sometimes today we call that speaking in tongues or prophecy when someone would go up and speak about things of God. And what he's saying is like, look, you can't have a spiritual manifestation in worship without having the Holy Spirit in you. So know that the Holy Spirit is alive and well in these places. I'm not condemning spiritual gifts. I believe in them. They are from the Holy Spirit. But this is where he continues. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he goes on and lists all of these various gifts. But I want us to focus on this sentence, number seven, verse seven. And I want us to focus on what he's saying because this determines everything that comes after it. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, to each is given a spiritual gift. To each is given a spiritual gift for the common good good. What Paul is trying to say, and he, he uses this word com- that's translated as common good, it's really symphoron in Greek, and it means to bear together at the same time, like to carry something together, to hold something together. And what he's trying to articulate to the Corinthians is like, look, I think it's great that y'all are so passionate about worship that you feel compelled to speak by the Holy Spirit. I think that's wonderful. But let's be clear that all of those gifts are in service to something else. All of those gifts are in service to this common good, to us carrying the name of Jesus. What was clear that was happening, if you read on, is that some were saying, well, I I have the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm the one who should be in charge of this whole organization. Some others were bragging about their gifts and saying that they were better because they had certain manifestations of the Spirit that others didn't. And there was this division within them about who had better gifts. And Paul corrects them and says, look, gifts are great. It doesn't matter unless they are in service to something greater. And he goes on in that next paragraph, and he starts a very famous illustration, a very famous metaphor. And he talks about the church as Christ's body. He starts to describe all the members of the body as interdependent, as woven together, that they all have a purpose, that they all are unique, but mostly that they are all needed, that they all serve something, this common good. And in the case of the body, they all serve the head, which is Christ. And then interestingly, Paul stops and he says, look, you're right. These gifts are great. I want you to use them. I want you to understand they're for the common good. And then there's this famous line, and depending upon which translation you read, it might be in chapter 13 or it might be in the end of chapter 12. It says, strive for the greater gifts. Great. Strive for those greater gifts but I will show you still a more excellent way. And what is that more excellent way? What is that next chapter? Look, y'all looking, y'all know. What is 1 Corinthians 13? Half of you had at your wedding. Love chapter. Thank you, Don. It is the love chapter. He says, look, 
None of this matters. Your uniqueness, your personality, what makes you special, none of it matters if it is not in service to something greater. And that something greater has a name that Jesus preached, and it is called agape. And that love is not a feeling. It is a general set of actions that means that you submit to one another, that you live in service for your brother and sister. And that is what is going to make us unique, and that is what is going to set us apart, and that is what is going to change the world. You see, he was believing deeply in the power of uniqueness in each of the people in Corinth, but he wanted to reorient their focus. Their greatness wasn't for themselves. Their greatness was for the body that they were a part of. And I think there's a great lesson for us to learn in that. Because today, when we think of self-knowledge, when we think of self-discovery, we often think of it as this individual path, as this path that we're trying to grab on and uncover these gifts that we're already hidden. We're trying to make ourselves better. In other words, we think of this as this upward ascent. If we know ourselves better, then we are moving towards enlightenment. But what if self-discovery, what if self-knowledge is something else entirely? What if instead of going up, it's about going down? What if it's about uncovering and moving past and putting aside all these habits and patterns, repeated thoughts that you have that stop you from loving others better? What if instead it's not about discovering your gifts, but also discovering what prevents you from using those gifts fully in the world? One of my favorite teachers on this, Richard Rohr, he says, self-discovery is about uncovering the traps that keep us from living fully as God created us to be so that we can use our gifts for the good of others and the world. The truth is, if we do self-discovery right, then the more that we understand and discover who we were created to be, the better we can love those for who God created them to be. The more that we understand who we are called to be and created to be in God, then the better that we are of loving those around us for exactly who God created them to be. Now the question becomes, well, great, how? (laughs) How do you go on this path that isn't an upward descent, but is a downward descent to self-discovery? And there are lots of tools out there. There's most notably therapy. There is stuff like meditation and contemplative practices. There's spiritual direction. But today, I'm going to offer you one tool, the singular tool that has changed the way that I think about relationships. And I'm going to be really honest. We put off teaching about this for two years because this has become a super trendy tool in a way that has been used and that doesn't relate to how I understand it. It's something that you've seen memes about and their Instagram accounts about. And if you've heard, you probably have heard about it and maybe taken a test or so online. And I just don't think that that's the way it should be taught. And so I held back. We didn't teach about this, even though it's the thing that Stephen and I use the most when working at this church. But today, I'm going to offer it with some caveats. Because the reality is, if I think about what has been most important in my path of self-discovery, 
what has helped me undo all those traps to move past to the person that God has created to, to meet, it is the Enneagram. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you've never heard for, of it, I'm going to give you a brief overview. The first thing to know about the Enneagram is that it's the nine-type personality test. And I say that like cringing inside it, because here's the deal. Unlike other personality tests, it is not a box. It is not a box that you fit yourself in. It is a map of how you can start to undo some of these habits that you have. And the idea is that when you grow up, you start to gravitate towards one of these types. And I'll show you what the symbol is. It looks like this. There's really complicated arrows and lines. We're not going to go into that. But it looks like this. And in childhood, you start to gravitate towards one of these numbers. And it's your way of being and living in the world, this number. And the important thing to know about these numbers and why I said it's not a box is that within each of those numbers, I think of them as paint strips. There's a million different varieties of a four, for example. There's a million different ways to think of a two. It's like two is orange, and there could be a million different iterations of what that two looks like. And the reason that there are a million different variations is because unlike other personality tests, the Enneagram is not based on your behaviors at all. And that's why when you take the online personality test for Enneagram, they often come out wrong. Because you're doing it like every other personality test you've ever done based on your behavior. But the Enneagram is based on your motivation. It's based on a usually unconscious motivation that you have lived with and strived for for your whole life. And it takes a long time to uncover that motivation, to start to piece together what actually motivates you to act. And what's interesting is that there are nine different motivations in the world, so chances are you are not married or friends with someone who has the exact same motivation as you. And so it takes some time to start to piece together why there might be conflict or why you not, might not be seeing the things the same way. And it's not because of your behavior generally. It's because y'all are operating from different motivations. And so here's the thing about this, and I'm going to give you some caveats. Here's four. You don't change. Once you have a number, you're a number. Once you grow up and try to figure out who you are, doesn't matter. Your number from when you were a child is the same. It doesn't change. Two, you can't be two. I've had people tell me I'm a little bit seven, a little bit two. Bogus. Can't be two, all right? You got to pick one. The idea is that you adopted this way of thinking from when you were younger, and then you stuck with it. Third, despite the circle that means that the nines are on top, which the nines feel drastically uncomfortable with, if you know... If you know, you know, but the nines are not superior. There is no type that is better than the other. You just, it just is a circle that looks like that. It's based on some ancient Enneagram stuff that happened for desert fathers and desert mothers. But the nine is not better. No type is better. And then fourth, and this is most important, no one can tell you what number you are besides you. Literally, no one can tell you what number you are besides you because they'd have to be in your head in order to figure out what you're thinking. And for most people, it takes months. 
and years of reading through the types to really try to figure out what their internal motivation is. It takes a long time to sort out this kind of stuff, which is why I'm so opposed to the kind of the online test version. I always tell people when they ask me, I said, read the types, like go through the book and read the types, start to feel which one kicks you in the gut a little bit, and that might be a good starting point. You can easily rule out a lot. You'll usually end up with three that you're like, yeah, that kind of feels right. And then from there, you start to wield down to one. But it usually takes a lot of time. And Richard War says that you really can't figure it out till your second half of life. Um, I think I've met lots of people who figured out their first half of life, but that is just some advice that I always remind people of when they're struggling to figure out their time. So what we're going to do today in the remaining time is I'm going to go over the types. And again, I can't tell you how much this is killing me inside because I don't want you, what I don't want you to do, do not go home and go online and take a test and try to figure out what you are. Don't do it. I will be so upset. Don't do it. But what I want you to do is I want you to observe these types and I want you to think about which one hits you hard. And my guess is there's going to be three to four. Take note of what those three to four are and then go home and read a little bit more about those types. And spoiler alert, next week is a really big, big surprise here. We're having someone here who knows a lot more about this than us who's going to come and speak. And so come back with those three to four types in mind as you come next Sunday, okay? So let's start. Deep breath. Number one, the reformer. They have, are driven by desire to perfect everyone and everything, including themselves, to make it better. All they want is to fix things. All they want is to see the world and all they can see is problems. They have this voice inside their head that tells them what's wrong. And then they use that voice, maybe to a fault, to correct everything around them. And sometimes this manifests in external behaviors and they redo dishwashers and stuff. And sometimes this manifests in their own way of thinking. They just see problems all the time and all they want is to make them better. And they're driven by this desire to perfect and to be good and to be worthy. That's me, in case you're wondering. <laughs> I'm a one. All right, number two, the helper. They are driven by a need to serve and meet the needs of others, to win their approval and love. There are the people out there who are always offering to help, sometimes at the expense of their own boundaries. They usually don't have boundaries, and they start to build resentment over time because they really, really want to help, but the reason they want to help is they need that approval and love from others. And so they depend on that external validation to tell them who they are. Type three, the achiever. The achiever is driven by a need to succeed, or maybe more importantly, to appear successful to others. They will do anything and everything to appear successful. So they'll walk into rooms, they have this uncanny ability to adapt to whatever situation they're in. So they'll walk in and they'll know who they'll have to be and they'll act that way. If you have friends who walk into situations and they're in one way here and one way there, maybe it's because they're trying to fit in and be successful in that environment. Threes have learned this since they were a child, and they're experts at it. They're driven by the need to succeed, but they also feel like they can never do enough. And so they end up on this treadmill of trying to do, 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 and it's never enough for them. All they want is to be valuable, but they do it in a way that leads to more obstacles 
than a way of freedom to live who they truly are. Type four, the individualist. I did not put an icon on purpose because the fours would be offended if I put anything in that box because the fours are driven by a need to be special and unique. They feel like something in them is fatally flawed and has been since childhood. And they just need to fill that box with something that is unique and creative and special in order to fill that flaw that they feel that they have. And they're constantly trying to create beautiful things around them as a, as a way of, of making beauty in the world that they can't see in themselves. Often, fours are more susceptible to depression, but they're also our greatest artist. They're the ones who can create things out of nothing because they see beauty where others do not. But again, their drive to be unique, it ultimately is both a gift and a curse, like everything in our personality. If used well, it can create beautiful, beautiful things. If used poorly, it can lead into a spiral of feeling that they are not worthy enough to be in the place that they're at. Type five, the investigator. They are driven by our need to perceive and understand everything. They need to master every type of knowledge because they were taught when they were young, if I master it, if I know things, then I will be safe. Then I will be secure from this world that feels like it's flooding in on me. Fives generally feel like the world is too much at all times. So they go into their little private studies and pick up a book or Google and learn things instead. And that makes them feel safe. They often do this at the expense of relationships. They'd rather not engage with other people because that feels too scary. And so they end up in their own little worlds with only their knowledge to support them. They feel as if they're masters of that knowledge. Then everything will be okay. Type six, the loyalist. The loyalists are really interesting. This is the most common type. So the loyalists are driven by this understanding of the world that the world is dangerous out there. The world is scary and dangerous, and the best way to prepare for it is to think of every worst-case scenario plan that you could possibly think of. Sixes are the people that you want when you're in a situation where it might be a little scary, things might go awry, because they're the ones who brought the first aid kit. They're the ones who are planning, and as parents, you can really tell who sixes are. They're the ones who have, like, step B, step C, step C, step D, of what they would do if things went awry. They're always on edge, though, because they're always thinking about what might happen. The question that is in their head all the time is, what if? What if? What if? And they start to think about that question so much that sometimes it turns themselves into doubt. I have, my sister-in-law is a six, and she says, the thing that I doubt the most is my own doubt. I'm constantly in this cycle of what if? What if? What if? The beautiful side of sixes, as you can tell by the name, is that they're incredibly loyal. That all they want is safety and security and to be certain. And they will stand by you till the end because they believe in that security and the value that it can provide. But if they let their anxiety, their perpetual feeling that something might happen, even if it isn't, it can also lead them down a path of where they snap and are angry and cause friction in relationship. Number seven, 
People love these, and especially sevens. Sevens will tell you how, that they're sevens. They love being sevens because sevens notoriously are the fun ones. They are the ones who are excited, who are full of joy, who are optimists. They're the ones who like spontaneously plan vacations. They're the ones that most of us want to be at some point because they're so fun to be around. And they are. They, they plan adventures and joy, and they, they just attract it into their life. They're usually extroverted in some way because they, they love all this energy. But the downside to the seven, the dark side, the shadow side, is that they do that. They attract the joy and the adventure and the excitement in order to avoid any feelings of discomfort or pain. As children, they were often the performers or the entertainers, and they learned that if we are happy enough, if we're excited enough, then that would keep the peace in the family. And so they learn that that's how I'm supposed to be. But they do it all through adulthood. And eventually they get to a place where they're no longer talking about hard things. And if you're in a partnership where you want and need to talk about hard things because hard things will happen, it can be really difficult to be in relationship with a seven. If they haven't faced that need to bear life together, to talk about difficult, difficult things. Type eight is the challenger. The way that they act generally is that they assert strength and power over the environment that they're in in order to mask weakness and vulnerability within. So the way that they act in the world, or the way they see they, the world, is like everything would be better if we just asserted our power over this environment. And sometimes they do it for great reasons. Actually, eights at their strongest are, are crusaders for those who are not getting a voice. They're crusaders for the vulnerable. But that can be generalized into all populations where they become crusaders for things that don't need crusade, to be crusaded for. They can become the kind of people who are like kind of intense and hard to handle because it feels like they're angry all the time. They aren't angry. They just have a lot of intensity. And they need to act that out because they want to win. They want to be against and challenge. They're driven by this need to constantly question, to poke holes, to rethink. And there are good sides to that gift, but there's also the danger. The danger of not letting those in your life speak for themselves, not letting those in your life that you're in relationship with to be fully who they are created to be. And so the eighth path of self-discovery is to start to move aside some of those habits and patterns they become accustomed to, where they're always the winner, where they're always in charge, starting to let go of some of that on their path to be created who they were created to be. And the last one, nine, the peacemaker, the darlings of the Enneagram, because they are the laid-back, sweet, no one disagrees with them, they're just easy-to-be-around kind of people. I'm married to one, so I can say they're just easy to be with. And the reason they're peacemakers is they're driven by this idea that they just avoid conflict at all costs. They avoid conflict at all costs because they were taught when they were little that there was a lot of fighting in the house and all they need to do was keep the peace. Like, just keep the peace. And so they would act in ways that were sweet and laid back. And that's how they got what they wanted. That's how they got peace in the household. The dark side of this is that nines can be really withdrawn to the point when, when there is conflict, they can start to disengage in a way that's not healthy. 
they get tired or go to sleep or escape more common in nine than any other type because they just don't want to deal with it because their way of thinking and habits that they've evolved over time don't allow for them to be able to have space to know how to do that well. And it takes a lot of uncovering for nines to move forward, to be able to assert themselves and to be able to believe that they are valuable for just who they are now. Okay, those are the nine types. I think it was probably a little darker than you thought because you're used to like personality types that are like, this is what's glorious about a four. But instead, I hope that it showed you and you, that you identified with a couple of those at the very least. Look, if the Enneagram isn't for you, if this feels like, like voodoo or something, that's fine. Take a step back from it. Don't do the Enneagram. But here's what I want you to do. Regardless if this language is true, you all are motivated by some internal motivation that is driving you to do your behaviors. And those behaviors are not what's significant in your relationship. We focus on the behaviors a lot. But what's actually going to change your life is when you start to uncover that it's not what you do that matters in your relationships, it's why you do it. And the best thing that you can do for your relationship, the best thing that you can do to move forward, is start to uncover those patterns in yourself and start to wonder if you're doing this thing to perfect the world around you in a way that your partner might not need or whether you're challenging the situation that might not need it to be challenged. You can start to undo and unpack. And as you push back those things, what you start to realize is that you were never those behaviors in the first place. In fact, you were never, never that motivation in the first place. We've taken that motivation, the world has turned it into a thing that has become a compulsion. But originally, the Sufis and early Christians believed that those nine personalities were the nine faces of God, that they each represented something in God. The desire to be perfect was based on God's perfection. The desire for peace was based on God's love. The desire to challenge was based on this idea of God's truth and what was true in the world. Every one of you is created in a unique way in order to fulfill this body of God. Each one of you has the ability to show God to the other, and what's so cool is that you have the ability to show God in a different way that they haven't yet seen before. My hope and prayer over these next few weeks as we start to dig deep into this particular tool, but with the motivation behind it that you start on your own journey of self-discovery this fall, is that you can start to identify that why behind your actions, that motivation that is driving you. And name it not as bad or something that is evil, but just something that is there, something that might get in your own way, something that you need to unpack so that you can love others better. Because there is a more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of symbols, but do not have love, I gain nothing. That's what Paul wrote. And it is true for day, today, just as it was true back then. So as we move forward, I'm going to pray for us at our time together and pray for your exploration and conversations in the car as you go home. And we'll move forward in service. Lord, who is multitudes, who holds all of the images of us, 
Lord, who is the reflection of us and the world, thank you. Thank you for making us uniquely. Thank you for giving us what you have given us. Lord, I pray over these people as they go into their conversations, as they go into their cars, as they go to talk with their spouses, Lord, that they may remember that we only do this in the name of love. And if it is not love, that we will sound like symbols crashing. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for our ability to worship and be together this Sunday. It is in your holy name that we pray. Amen.